Richard mentioned a couple of things uh, as he was explaining how a song came to be and talked about that that song was originally in Latin and German. So I'm going to give you a quick Latin lesson. We talk Hebrew and we talk Greek all the time. However, one of the languages of the church is the Latin language. And when you look up here in English, what you're going to see are what we call the five solas of the church. And the one in the middle is the one we want to talk about this morning. Sola is the Latin word that means alone or singular. And then grace, which we have put in front of this, is gratias. And gratias actually does mean grace or unmerited favor. So if you've ever wondered, like when we sing amazing grace, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about God's amazing unmerited favor, meaning you and I have been shown great favor, and yet we did nothing to earn that favor. And so these are what we call the five solas. There was this guy named Martin Luther and many other reformers who started to have a little conflict with a Catholic church. And what you're going to learn a little bit later on is this this conflict wasn't really with the Catholic Church. It's been around for years, this disagreement on how one comes to experience salvation. But for Martin Luther, he was really concerned because he believed the Catholic Church of his day was making salvation just like the Jews had made it in the Old Testament, an issue of works. And Martin Luther says, that's not what I read in Scripture. What I read in Scripture is this, that we are saved by grace Alone, but, but church, I share that with you because, again, here's what I want you to understand. This battle went well beyond Martin Luther and his 95 thesis in 1795, and it goes well beyond that. It goes all the way back to Peter and Paul and Barnabas and all this missionary journey coming to a head and a group of people challenging Paul as he was ministering to Gentiles. He's starting to share the story about how these Gentiles have come to believe in Jesus. And there was a group that showed up and said, wait a minute. Believing in Jesus is not quite enough. There's a little bit more that they need to do. If they want to be Christians, they want to become part of the church. It's not simply about believing in Jesus. And so that's the text we're going to be looking at in Acts today is how Peter and Paul had to deal with that, how they responded to that as a group started to require that not only you believe in Jesus, but but you add to that some prescriptions of the Old Testament law and these dietary restrictions and circumcision and all the things that we're going to find in the law of Moses. In fact, here's what they're teaching. They were teaching that you had to first convert to Judaism. So for me and you today, who are Christ followers, if they had gotten their way, and if that's the stance that Peter would have taken and Paul would have taken and Barnabas would have taken, if it was the stance that Scripture had taken, all of us would have to go on through the tenets of Judaism to become church members. That's literally what was on the table. But but let me share with you where Peter landed and where Paul landed and where Barnabas landed because this is where Scripture landed. Church, our salvation cannot be earned. Jesus was the one who earned it. And so our salvation from our standpoint cannot be earned. It has to be grace given to us. It's a gift. And we're going to talk about at the end of the day, what do we need to do with this gift? How do we reflect upon that gift properly? And what are some things we need to consider? But what I want to do in the text is get you to the point of understanding that this is one of the tenets of our Christian faith, especially as Southern Baptists. These these things that we're going to talk about today, this is what we call doctrine. These are things that we base our theology discussions on. And, And so, again, here's where I want your thoughts to be this morning. You are not here because you somehow earned favor from God. You are not here in a safe position because you've done anything that was worthy of him looking at you and saying, you know what, you are so good in your performance that the death of Jesus was worthy to pay for that. No, you are here if you are a child of God because you have been saved by grace 
and by grace alone. God has given unto you his unmerited favor. Now, you do remember in the book of James, because we have been given this unmerited favor, then me and you should produce works. Yet it's not our works that earned us this favor. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want us to study through the text, and I want you to hear Paul talk about it. I want you to hear Barnabas talk about it, but especially I want you to hear where Peter lands. At the very end of this, Peter stands up and makes as bold of a statement as you could possibly make. So pray with me, and we're going to study this morning in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. Father, we thank you for this unmerited favor. We thank you that no matter what language we say it in, Father, whether it's sola gratis or whether it's in English as grace alone, we thank you that your grace is sufficient. We thank you that it is your grace being the only requirement Father, that is necessary for me to enter into a saving faith relationship with you through the death and the belief in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Father, we we don't want to just rest on that and kick back and say, hey, we've got it all figured out. Father, what we want to continually do is we want to study, we want to see where these doctrines come from. That if somebody were to discuss with us, how does one come to know Jesus? How does one become saved? How does one experience the glory that heaven holds? We know less days to sing God's praise in this place called heaven. Father, that we would have answers to that. We would be able to sit down with someone who doesn't understand and explain to them that I did nothing, we did nothing to earn our salvation, that Jesus did everything to earn salvation. So, Father, today, give us wisdom to understand this principle. Sola gratias. Father, grace alone, give us the wisdom today to understand we did nothing to deserve this, and yet you chose to give it anyway. Father, we praise you for that grace in the name of Christ Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. So I want you to study with me these first 11 verses out of chapter 15 of the book of Acts. Uh, This is when the return to Antioch has taken place, and we'll talk about that on our map here in just a moment. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So so immediately you see there's a work being required for one to experience salvation. I've always been confused. Luke, if you'll go to that next slide for me, I want them to see this map that we're going to be talking about. Will it go to the next slide? Or is it stuck? There we go. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so, so here's the deal. When you look up here at the church at Antioch, if you remember the map we've been studying Paul and Barnabas have done this big-time loop, and they got all the way to Derby, and then they circled back from Derby. That's up there where it says New Testament churches, Palestine, Syria. So they made it to Derby. They went all the way back. Remember, Paul was stoned to death, and Lystra, they still went back there anyway. And so they made that big circle. They've come all the, all the way back through the island of Cyprus. Now they're up here, and they're launching church at Antioch where you see Syria. That was the church that launched them. So... so that's kind of the model of the New Testament. When these missionaries go, go out, there's churches that launch them. We at Southern Baptist, we kind of do this as 46,000 churches, launching as many as possible. That's our International Mission Board, North American Mission Board missionaries. So, so we do it as a collection of 46,000 churches. Antioch had launched Paul and Barnabas. Uh, I, will, I will give Antioch, the church of Antioch, this. That's a pretty impressive missionary team that they selected, being that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. So, so they, they picked well. When they picked a couple of missionaries, they picked a couple of pretty good ones. All right, so it says they went down. So, so some people from Jerusalem went 
down to Antioch. Now, y'all do understand, like in English, that's really strange, right? Um, it, it, I grew up in Mississippi. We're fairly simple. If it's north and you have to go south to get to it, which direction are you traveling? Down. Okay. They went down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Obviously, when you cross the big water and go to the other side, the rules are different because that's, that, that's how. But, but I want you to understand why they say that. Jerusalem was the mountain country. When you get up into Antioch, it's what we would call in Mississippi the delta. It is all the flat floodplain area. So Syria was this flat floodplain. Jerusalem was the mountain country, and so it was always worded from Jerusalem that they went down from Jerusalem because they came down from the mountain country into the floodplain. So it didn't matter that they were headed up. You would still say they came down to go to Antioch. So so I want you to understand the wording here. But the key is this. Notice what they said. Here's where they landed. Unless you are circumcised, and remember why circumcision is so important from the book of Leviticus. Every male eight days old and older had to be circumcised because that was the outward sign of being in covenant with Yahweh. So if you didn't have the outward sign of being in covenant with Yahweh, you weren't a part of the covenant community. So this is the sign of Judaism. This is what was required to become a Jew by faith. And so notice what they're saying. Unless you are circumcised, so unless you become a Jew... According to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. The word cannot, there's the word dinamé. That's where we get the word dynamite in English, meaning it's exploded. You don't have the ability. You don't have the power. Unless you are circumcised, it is no way, there is no possibility for you to come to know the Lord. That's what they're saying because the word saved is sozo. That's the word all throughout the New Testament we use for salvation. So when you see sozo, it's what you and I would call spiritual salvation. So here's what they're saying. Unless you do this physical thing, which means you convert to Judaism, which is a work. So I'm, I'm doing something from my end. I become circumcised. I become a Jew. Then I make myself capable of being saved. So, so literally, you have a big role in salvation. And that's not what we're going to learn. We're going to learn that God is the one who has the big role. Verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, and let me clarify for you, um, serious argument, I'm not sure what your text says, Uh, it's the word stasis, this means heated quarrel. So when I tell you serious argument, yes, this would have been a serious argument. This was a heated quarrel. Let, Let me go ahead and clarify for you. Here we are in 2019, I have watched people engage in heated quarrel disagreeing over these same things even today. 2,000 years later, in case you don't know, we're still arguing about the same stuff. No, no joke. And, and let me go ahead and tell you this. We will still be arguing about the same stuff when Jesus comes back and we figure out who's right. And, and so the argument's not going to go away. This is a 2,000-year-old argument. And so they're, they're in disagreement here, and it's a heated disagreement. Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Now remember, go up. Doesn't make any sense, but we're going up into the mountain country. So So they're going to leave. And in case you don't know, this is 250 miles. That's a 250-mile journey on foot. So they didn't just go up and, hey, let's just walk down to Jerusalem. We'll work this out. Um, No, this was a planned trip. They had to have stopping points and people to help take care of them. Notice who they were going to meet with. These are two of the offices that are mentioned in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, where it says God gave some gifts to the church. Those gifts were administrative offices, apostles, prophets, then evangelists, that's the church planners of their day, and then the final list was pastor, teacher. And you're like, well, wait a minute. 
you know, Justin, my, my text says elders, that's the word presbyteros. Presbyteros is interchangeable with the word that we also translate as pastor, with the word that we also translate as bishop. So yeah, anytime you want to start calling me bishop, that's great. That's the same word that's here. So instead of Pastor Justin from now on, we're just going to put it on the website, Bishop Justin. No, we're not going to do that, by the way, just let you know. However, the words are interchangeable. So overseer, pastor, elder, those are, those are interchangeable terms. They're all the same role, just different functions of the same role. And so it's a recognized office of the church. So they're going to meet officially with the leaders of the church that's in Jerusalem. Remember, church at Jerusalem is considered the mother church, so to speak. This is where Christianity began. And so they're going to meet with those leaders. When they had been sent on their way by the church, so this is kind of funny, they're going to meet with the church, but they're sent by the church, even though they're two different churches. Well, that's because the word church in the New Testament, ecclesia, refers to like a local body of believers. Now, now you and I know that there is a universal church, meaning all believers of all ages, of all denominations, all believers who are in a faith relationship with Jesus, that's the church. That's the universal church. But the term ecclesia in the New Testament refers to a local body. So you've got like a local body at Antioch, who is sending Paul and Barnabas to meet with a local body in Jerusalem. So, so one church is meeting with another church, even though they're all church. Make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah. So one church meeting with another church, but they're all church, even though they're different churches. Kind of weird, I, I know, but that's how it works in the languages. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. So as they're making their way to Jerusalem, remember, that's 250 miles they're stopping and visiting with other believers that they knew. It's kind of like if you were traveling across country and you knew it was going to take you multiple days instead of staying in hotels, you arranged with different friends in states where you knew you had friends to stop and spend time with them. That's exactly what they're doing. 250 miles on foot, we're going to stop. Well, they're telling all their stories as they travel. Man, this is what's happening. Gentiles are coming to know the Lord. And I mean not just one or two, but bunches are coming to follow Jesus. And so people are getting excited. Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. All right, so the church congregation, the apostles and the elders, so the leaders of the church congregation. And they reported all that God had done with them. But, you know, so anytime you have a writer in the New Testament starts with but or therefore or one of those words that gets your attention, that lets you know that everything's good for a moment. Then all of a sudden it's not as cheery as it once was. It, it, It becomes a little more tense. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, and, and you heard that right, who was Jesus? Who was the greatest enemy of Jesus when he was alive on earth? The Pharisees. Yet this shows you how far-reaching the grace of God actually is. Some of those same Pharisees had become Christ's followers. They're still Pharisees. Like, they're still serving in the Jewish religion, yet they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So we would call them Messianic Jews. In case you don't know, there's some of those groups that exist still to this day. Messianic Jews, that they still practice all the tenets of Judaism, but they do believe Jesus is the Messiah. And, and so this is the Pharisaical group that gets up and begins to teach. They stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The word law there is nomos, that is scriptures. And, and so here's what I want you to understand. Look in the top left. So not only are we going to require the males to be circumcised, we're going to require every Gentile to follow every prescription of the first five books of the Bible. Notice right in the middle, right in the middle of that list, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. 
do y'all remember all the detailed laws that we read in Leviticus? Like the sacrificial system, the dietary restrictions, the cleansing restrictions, the priestly line. Do y'all remember all that stuff that we, there's no way you could because I don't. I mean, it was tons upon tons upon tons of things that you have to practice as a Jew. And so here's what they're virtually saying. If you're of non-Jewish lineage and you want to follow Jesus as Messiah, you must first follow all of these things before you can convert to Christianity. Here's the only problem. Did the Jews follow all those things? No, that's what got them in trouble to begin with. They, They didn't relate to God the way God had them relate to him. They didn't follow the law and the prescriptions of it either. Yet we're going to make the Gentiles follow it all before we'll recognize them as Christ's followers. So so you do understand then it becomes a work salvation, not a grace salvation. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, again, here's this word debate. It is heated. So that that means there was some big time disagreement here. Like not happy disagreement. This is not like we're reasoning casually and reasoning reasoning with, with great respect and love and non-chaos, this means it got heated. There was big-time disagreement 2,000 years ago over the mechanism of salvation. How is it God does this? You have to be a Jew first. You have to follow all these tenets first. Then God saves you, or does God simply save you through his grace, and then you start to follow his moral law? Which one is it? Well, that's what they're trying to figure out. That's what they're arguing about. And, and, And again, understand, this is heated. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, You are aware that in the early days, he's talking about the early days of Christianity. So the early days of the church post-Jesus leaving. So Jesus being resurrected, Jesus assuming his position at the right hand of the Father. He's talking about those early days. God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. Um, That is exactly what it says, but it says more. Where it says hear the gospel is the word akuo. We've talked about this word before. It literally means be able to hear. You do understand unless the Holy Spirit acts upon someone with the gift of faith, no matter how much they hear the gospel, they'll never believe it. The only way they can ever accept it is if the Holy Spirit acts upon them first. You did not choose to be saved at the moment you were saved. God chose that moment, then you responded. You had to be given the gift of faith in order to respond to that moment. And so, did you have a role in your salvation? Yes, you had to receive it. You had to choose that. Yet, you did not choose when that gift was given. God chose when that gift was given. And so, this is what Peter said. God chose to have me to be the mouthpiece that said, hey, we need to include the Gentiles because God was making them capable of hearing and understanding. God was giving to them the gift of faith, and so salvation came through that gift. And God, who knows the heart... All right, so again... Remember when Jesus talked about the parable of the soils? You, know, you throw out the seed, and some of, that, some of that soil is really hard, and it's not going to receive the seed, and the birds come and pick it away. And, and, and some of that soil, it looks really fruitful, and there seems to be a production going on there, but when it gets really tough, when times get hard, that production goes away, and it's not really real. But there's this fertile soil. This is exactly what Peter just said. God knows the heart. God knows who's going to say yes. God knows who's going to say no. And he knew within the Gentiles there were people like me and like you who would accept. So he bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts. Don't miss this. If you want to circle or underline, this is a huge statement. Cleansing their hearts by faith. Remember what faith is? Pistis, what can be believed, what they think to be true. So, so 
How did God save your heart? Was it your water baptism that saved you? Look up here at me very carefully. Was it your water baptism that saved you? He cleansed their heart by what? By what they believed. Your salvation occurs through faith. Your outward baptism is simply a statement that you have been cleaned and saved on the inside. Not my rules. I didn't write it. It's in the Scriptures. It's very clearly explained here. And so Peter says, God knew their heart. He cleansed them because of faith. Now then, why are you testing God? The word testing is pirazo. It literally means to examine somebody. So, So here's what they're saying. Why is it that God is saving them according to their faith and their faith alone? Why are you adding to what God's requiring? Why are you examining God as though his salvation method is not good enough? I mean, Peter's being pretty bold here. You've got to understand he's preaching this to the whole church. And he's like, how dare you examine God's method? How dare you, you look at God and tell him his plan of salvation is not quite good enough? It doesn't have all the parameters in it, God, that we would require. And, and it's a really good thing that God doesn't require any more than what he does or none of us would get in. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Here's what he just said. You're wanting them to follow all the tenets in these five books. He said, why are you requiring that of them when we haven't done it? I mean, Peter's just being honest. This is more like his confession than anything else. Why would you require the Gentiles to keep perfectly the entire law of Moses when not a Jew that's ever existed has ever done it? Not one. How dare you test God on this? How dare you require something that the Father is not requiring? On the contrary, and church, don't miss this. Here's our conclusion. Here's the theme of our passage. Here's the teaching point of the day, verse 11. So highlight, star, underline, whatever you do in your text. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they are. Let me read that one more time. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Grace plus what else? Look at your text one more time. Somebody tell me. We are saved. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord. Grace plus what else did he list there? Nothing. Nothing. So we are saved by what? Grace alone. Solo gratias. That's why the song, Amazing Grace, should mean so much to us as it meant to its author, the story of John Newton. Watch this. Amazing grace, how sweet the Blind, but now 
So you didn't know Amazing Grace was not called Amazing Grace. It had a more proper name, and yet it was about the story of Amazing Grace. You notice what it said about him? For the rest of his life, he reflected on what? His day of great deliverance. For the rest of his life, he reflected not on the storm, not on his lostness, not on his trials, not on his tribulations. What he reflected on the remainder of his life was his day of great deliverance, his day of salvation. Don't, don't raise your hand. But how many of you in this room can go back to your day of great deliverance? That you can go back and remember that very moment. I, I've shared with you, I can remember clearly, nine years old, Hurricane Baptist Church, Nighttime revival service, standing at the back door looking at absolute darkness and knowing that is not what I wanted for the remainder of my life. I can remember that. And I can remember somehow the Lord causing my hands to release that bar and turning me around and walking down and sharing with Brother Ronnie, our pastor at that time, that that I wanted to be saved. That I knew God was calling me to be saved. That was my day of great deliverance. All of you who are Christ followers, you've got a day of great deliverance. And so here's what we need to do with that day of great deliverance. We need to reflect on that gift. Remembering this, grace is an unmerited favor. It's a gift. You did nothing to earn it. There was nothing worthy in you to save. In fact, here's what the Bible says about you, that before you were saved, you were a sinner and you were against him. In the very womb of your mother, David says, you were born a liar. And so nothing about us was worthy of salvation, yet God in His great gift, in His great unmerited favor, chose to give us the great gift of salvation, chose to deliver us. And so here's the deal. As we reflect on this gift for just a moment, here's some things I want you to think through, however, as we reflect on this gift. Number one, here's what I want you to remember. Understand there's always going to be disagreement. You may disagree with other people on which religion is correct. You may disagree with people who are of the same religion how salvation actually occurs. There's been discussion for years, predestination, election, free will, human choice. These things have gone on for how long? Well, look at your text. That text is over 2,000 years old. You know how long we've been arguing about this? Over 2,000 years. So let me go ahead and clarify for you. You know why your pastor does not get in great debate over these things? Because Peter couldn't solve it, Paul couldn't solve it, Barnabas couldn't solve it. The only one that's going to solve it is named Jesus. I'm not him, so we're not going to fight about it. And so, do understand, there's going to be people who disagree with you. Number two, try not to argue about it, but because in this instance, you do understand there's no winners. There's no winners. I've got close, close friends, and I am the consummate thorn in their sides. And here's why, because I'm kind of what they call a middle ground guy, which is the no man's land. You can't be a middle ground guy. You're either five-point Calvinist or you're a five-point Arminian. There's no way you can be in the middle because that doesn't, I'm right in the middle. And I drive them crazy, and I enjoy that I drive them crazy because I talk them into buying me lunch all the time, making them think they're going to sway me one way or the other. It's awesome. Um, Baptists love to eat. I use other Baptists to feed me. It's a great thing. I'm just telling you, it's a great thing. However, here's the deal. I don't argue with them. Because you know what's really odd about this argument? Did you know both sides will use the same Scriptures to justify their positions? That means somebody has to be wrong. I'm smart enough to figure that out. If you argue this text for your side, and you argue this same text for your side, one of you has to be wrong. And so I'm right in the middle because I don't know which one of you is wrong. Let's just go eat. I'm happy Baptist. Let's go eat. 
And so we try not to argue. Here's what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on the result of salvation, not the mechanism by which God used. Because let me tell you, when you're trying to figure out the mechanism God used to save people, that is a fruitless search. You know why? Because Paul said, no one can search the unfathomable mind of God. Meaning this, you will never figure out what he did. Why? Because we're not God. Now, is there anything wrong with us studying and trying to understand what God has done? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Until the things we're studying, we allow to become divisive and separate us. And I've watched this. Why do you think there are so many denominations in the United States? Because we disagree on these things as we're dividing them and studying them and trying to understand them. We become embroiled in disagreement, and so we just take our toys and go play someplace else. And so, so then we have all these... That's why in Southern Baptist world, we're, we're really renowned for our church split stuff. That's why there's a hope church, and then like four blocks later, there's a new hope, and then there's like four blocks later, a newer hope, and then they're all the same. And these folks at newer hope used to be over here at hope, and they got to new hope, and they didn't like some people there either, so they ended up at newer hope, and that, that's just kind of how we do things. Unfortunately, that's not what we should be doing. We should be focusing on the result of salvation, not the mechanism of salvation, because you're not going to figure that out. But here's something I do want you to land on. What we cannot require for salvation is something the Scriptures do not require. That's all that Peter said. Peter stood up and said, hey, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I hear that the covenant with Moses was a big deal. I get it. I'm a Jew. That's what Peter would have said. I understand this. I know the Pentateuch. I know the Scriptures that Moses wrote. However, here's the deal. We have never followed those completely. That's why there had to be a Savior. If we could have kept all of these tenets of the law, Jesus would not have had to die. And since we couldn't do this, how dare you require somebody else to try to fall under something they can't carry? Jesus carried that load on his shoulders. It was called the cross. And he put that stuff to death. And the writer of Hebrews came back and said, that is the only sacrifice that will ever be made. See, people are telling me right now, as you study, the Jews are waiting for one thing. They're waiting for a temple to be rebuilt on Temple Mount and a sacrificial system to be reinstituted. You do understand that's not going to occur, right? Why would Jesus allow a secondary sacrificial system be instituted that would somehow have to add to the blood he shed? So you're telling me we're going to go back to offering bulls and turtle doves and goats and rams and whatever else we want to offer, and that somehow is going to be equivalent to what the blood of Jesus accomplished? The writer of Hebrews said, by no means. By no means. So we do not need to require, we do not need to require what the Bible does not. So here's where we land this morning. You may be here, and if I were to be able to get with you in a private setting and say, hey, do you know for sure that by God's grace alone, you're going to spend an eternity with Jesus in heaven once your physical body dies? Because here's what the Bible says about physical death. You're going to have it come to your world. You're going to experience that at some point. And so maybe you're sitting here and you're like, Justin, I get it. I understand what the text is saying. I just don't know that I have that or not. I don't know that I have this relationship Peter talked about with Jesus based on his grace because I don't know that I've ever really thought through what that means. I've gone to church and I've done this. I've thrown a little money in the plate and I've tried to do good things and live a good life and treat people well. But I don't know that I've got this grace alone salvation. Can you tell me how that happens for me? The answer is yes. But we don't do it right here in this setting after I've just finished preaching a whole message. What we do is we set aside a place that's far more private for you. 
where you can sit down with somebody from our church who's a part of what we call a prayer response team, and they're going to sit down with you and, and this information that is straight from the Bible. I didn't write it. It comes straight from the biblical text, and they're going to sit down with you and say, you know what, here's why you're in need of grace, and here's how God chose to give you this grace. We're not going to ask you to sign anything, raise your hand, commit to do anything. We just simply want to give you information for how you can be exactly what Peter was talking about, somebody that has been saved by grace alone. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When folks stand in just a minute, we start to pray. If you're comfortable, if you're comfortable with that, just kind of make your way right over here to these doors. You don't have to get any attention, draw any attention. If you're not comfortable with that, here's what I also ask. Then just hang on. Just kind of hold your seat where you are, and when this service is over, then walk over to these doors because our folks will wait for you. They're just going to wait and make sure nobody comes to spend some time with them. But however, there's, there's another large group in this room. You would look at me and say, I absolutely know. I absolutely know that I am saved by grace. What now? Well, here's the what now for you. When's the last time you just sat and did what John Newton did? The Bible said after God delivered him, he sat and reflected. You know what what reflect means, right? It's kind of look to see what's there. It's a reflection like that in the mirror. You look to see what's there. When's the last time you sat down with just you and God? and reflected upon all the grace He has shown you from your salvation to how He continues to grow you, to providing you with your income, your family, those who love you. When's the last time you just sat and contemplated with the Lord what grace actually is? See, I believe that's a healthy exercise for us, and I don't do it well. And yet the Scripture said this, be still and do what? Know that I am God. How do I know that God is God? I just sit and reflect on Him. And he dialogues with me. I, I may not be like the artist on that page. I mean, was that not incredible to watch that guy draw this history? I, I don't have that. But I can't do what John Newton did. I might not write a song, but I can sit and reflect on this great grace-filled gift that God has given me. That's all that I'm asking you to do. If you're a Christ follower in this room, Just take this moment just to reflect. And man, it may be you just drop to your knees and praise God for that. Maybe you lift your hands and you praise God through song as Richard pleased us in just a moment. Maybe you come to this altar and and maybe even though you're a grace-filled salvation person, maybe there's some issues in your life you want God to deal with, a circumstance, a sin. So maybe you come to the altar and you just lay that before the Lord. Here's all I'm challenging you to do. Reflect on your gift of salvation and what God tells you to do in the midst of that reflection. So when you look at this gift of salvation, whatever he shows you, then just be obedient to what God calls you.